We're in the book of Malachi. This is part 11. The blessing of God and the devouring forces of life. The blessing of God and the devouring forces of life. By the way, if you're here and you didn't get study notes, anybody without study notes, they'll bring it to you if you just hold your hand up and wave it a little bit. Or a prayer list, they'll bring you that too. Or a Starbucks gift card, if you want one of those, just wave your hand, they'll bring you one. I don't lie from the pulpit very often, but... We're in Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. And these uh, challenging Old Testament texts... Malachi 3.6, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. And the idea there is I made a covenant. It's not that they deserve this. It's just God says, I'm, I'm faithful. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. And now to show it's not their worthiness that earned this, he says, verse 7, from the days of your fathers, so this isn't recent, this is generational, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you. And there's an order there. And you see it, it's like the prodigal son. The father welcomes the prodigal son, but the father doesn't go to the far country grab the prodigal son and bring him home. The son has to come to himself, old King James, come back, the father welcomes. That's the same thing here. Return to me. I'll return to you. Come. You make the effort. Make the return. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, well, how? How shall we return? Then you get this surprising answer. It's not what I would expect. Verse 8, will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. So it's about tithes, but more than that, contributions, a a generous heart. Verse 9, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me. The whole nation of you. Ten, bring the full tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not bear, says the Lord of hosts. See, this is striking. Think about it. They probably feel they're in tough economic times, really tough economic times, and they probably feel they, they can't afford to obey the Lord in this command about the tithes and all the contributions because they can't afford to do it. It's a pretty human concern. And yet what they don't realize, there's, their crops are being devoured, 
and the tomatoes on the vine, they just fall off and rot before they can harvest them. So they, what they're not seeing is they are worse off for not obeying this command. Do you get that? You see that in the text? There's all sorts of problems, but they aren't attributing those problems to the fact that they aren't honoring the Lord. They're just, geez, it's a bummer. You know, it's not going very well, so we can't afford to tithe. And, and God is saying, these, these things don't have to be that mixed up if you'll just establish proper priorities in your life. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. That's what's happening right now. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed. For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of, of hosts. We, we spent much of the last study we were together on looking at verses 6 and 7. This this surprising foundation of making a return to God. And then, I don't know if you remember, we looked a lot at the fall of man. And I tried to make the case that it isn't hinging just, you know, in a couple Old Testament texts and a couple of New Testament texts where the word tithe is used, and Jesus talks about it too. It doesn't hinge on that. You can go back to the the account of creation and the fall, and you see this pattern of the tithe actually laid down long before it was used as a, uh, a tax for temple upkeep and the priesthood looking after them. We looked at the fall of man because it makes sense. When you're studying, how shall we return to you? If you're going to study how God wants these people to return to him, it might be useful to look at how they got separated from him in the truest sense in the fall. What caused the great collapse, collapse, not collapse, the collapse of this foundational separation from God's intended enjoyment and dominion of man over his created world? And we kind of saw, quick review, The principle behind tithing is strikingly related to the fall. Man lost dominion over the whole of the garden because he didn't obey God's instructions in the part of the garden. God placed a tree in the garden. He said to Adam and Eve, the rest is yours. Enjoy. They hadn't earned any of it. It was all a gift. The rest is yours. This is not. This is for your own use. This one part isn't. And and the central idea behind that, that whole collapse of everything God intended and designed for mankind, the central idea behind that tree in the garden wasn't poisoned apples or witch's spells or magic. As far as we can tell, it wasn't magic fruit or anything like that. God sets up two tests, two tests in the prohibition of that one tree. First... God is testing right there in the garden, right at the beginning of creation. God is testing the issue of rights and authority. Who is the creator of everything in the garden? Well, God is. Adam didn't create anything. 
nor did Eve. They didn't have anything by right. Adam and Eve brought nothing to the table in the creation account. They received everything as a gift. So this first test involves Adam's view of himself. If he came to see himself as the owner of the garden or in charge of the garden, then he would take the material realm into his own hands. And in essence, that's what Eve did. That's what Adam did. By and large, that's what the history of the world has been since. So God sets up, right at the beginning, the test of rights and authority. And the second thing that happens right back in the garden, God tests Adam and Eve's trust in his goodness and care. Would they believe, would they believe that everything would work out for their good in all of the garden if they honored God with this particular part of it? Would they believe that? Or would they think, you know what? I need the whole thing, right? I need the whole thing. Satan comes to Eve, and he said, it, the desire of her eyes, he just made this look good. This, the whole garden is theirs. It's one tree. And he says, look, look, look at that one tree. See, God says you can't have that. You can't be happy like that, Eve. You'll be better off if you have everything. You'll secure your life better if you have everything. You'll be more in charge if you have everything. Satan convinces Eve and Adam that they would end up more if they had what God set apart. Does that sound familiar at all? And we know that in taking for themselves the portion that God had set apart, they not only lost God's portion, they lost the whole garden. So that's the theology of that Genesis creation account. Of course, we're studying Malachi. And Malachi addresses a group of people who had messed up their lives in various ways, marriages, religious purity and devotion, idolatry, immorality. We studied a lot of them. And now they're in the position, perhaps more arrogantly than repentantly, to this question, verse 7. So how are we supposed to return, God? You say we're supposed to return? How? And the test of the garden gets set up again. Same thing. Same test. How serious are they about returning to God? We'll have our worship time when I'm done teaching. There has never been an era, and it's a good thing, there's never been an era where people have sung more songs in church about drawing near to God than this present age in church history. Virtually every song we sing in one way or another, has to do with God loving us, we loving God, drawing close to God, feeling his presence. I want to draw near to God. That's what, that's what the water, modern worship movement is all about. And that's good. 
And then in the middle of all the songs and the upraised hands and the closed eyes, you have to stop and say, how, how badly do the people want to draw near to God? This is what they're asking. In the middle of all the religious devotion in the temple and everything else, how, how serious are they about returning to God? How much of their lives do they want God to control? Will they keep living their lives in any way they want and then come to the altar and weep and cry? 2.13 of Malachi. And this is the second thing you do. God speaks through the prophet. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. And there's a better way to live. That's what this is about. There is a way that will place their lives firmly in the will and care of Father God. And so we come to verses 8 through 12 on the subject of tithing and contributions. And we're about halfway done, but point number one. What tithing is all about? Some things just are basic to understanding. So a tithe means tenth. Here's Jacob's words, Genesis 18, 22. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. That's the same word, tithe, exactly the same word. Tithe means tenth. You can't tithe 5%. You can't tithe 15%. That's important. Not in some prudish, legalistic sense, but in the sense that God, listen, God always makes, graciously makes, my obedience to him, a measurable thing. I can tell if I'm serious. I can tell if I'm obedient. It's not religious superstition. I can know. I can know if I'm obeying God in this area. Tithing is just, it's, it's the floor. It's not the ceiling, but that's, that's the floor. That's where you start. people in Malachi's day, you'll notice. You can get it right from the text. They weren't bringing the whole tithe. Not that they weren't doing something. They were bringing something, but it could be measured. It wasn't the full tithe. And the difference of their disobedience was a discernible difference. They could know it. B, here's the second thing to know. God claims the tithe as his. Leviticus 27.30, every tithe of the lamb, whatever, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If you've never heard it said to you in church before, hear it today. The Bible says the tithe is the Lord's. So, so it goes slightly beyond just a temple tax collected for the priesthood. God God claims the tithe, not just as something people pay. He claims it as his to start with. That's why Malachi can say that to withhold the tithe is not selfishness. It is that. Or just a lack of love for God. It is that. But because the tithe is the Lord, the word is it's actually robbing God. It's taking something that isn't yours. Will a man rob God, 3, 8, and 9? And yet you're robbing me. But you say, well, how? How have we robbed you? 
in your tithes and contributions. So you can see the way the prophet is pointing out the depth of the wickedness of this sin. I mean, just note the careful way in which this sin is penned in those first four words of verse 8. This striking question, five words, will a man rob God? I underline man and I underline God. Will a man rob God? So this isn't the same as a man robbing another man. But will, will a man rob God? A, a man who has been given life and breath freely from beyond himself by his creator, will that man rob God? Will a man who only lives for such a short time on this earth and then he's like a flower or a piece of grass that passes away, will, will that man, will he rob God? Will a man who lies so open to all of God's vision and knowledge, who can conceal nothing from God's sight, will that man rob God? And it's as though I'm, I'm kind of meant to see the arrogance, the hard-heartedness, the foolishness, the futility of withholding the tithe. We, uh, it's easy to forget little things. We were on the cruise ship, and we were with Murray and Cindy Cornelius, and he, just because of all the zillions of things that he's trying to keep on top of, he paid for the internet package, which on a cruise ship, if you've ever cruised, internet is like 30 bucks a day for lousy internet. So he had it, and then I would just say, let me use your internet. And that way the board won't get after me for a big internet bill. And so I'd borrow it for the odd time. And you do your banking. And you see different things that have to be paid, different things come into the account. And Rini's very good at it. She'll say, oh, there's this check we got. And that's $400. And then she'll say to me, but it's, but it's $360. 40 is not ours. Oh, and while you're away there, there's your paycheck. So there's another $500. And, and then she'll say, no, but that's... That's 450. And for all of our lives, did you ever go through this phase? I can remember years. We came here in 1982, and the church has always been very fair and generous. It wasn't ever their fault. But when we came here, and when I first came here, uh, I'll tell you a secret. When I moved here in 1982, the church paid me $26,000 a year. And did you ever go through this time where you go to a grocery store and, and, and you had to write out checks? Remember checks? And you'd go to write out a check and you'd think, okay, I know I've got a $500 overdraft, so we'll be okay as long as we don't go over that $500. you are always working in that overdraft part of your account. Did anybody else ever go through that or was that just me? And it's everything, it's just tight, tight, tight. But as from day one where we were married, any, any check, any money, anything that came into the house, you take 10%. You just don't think about it. 
Because if you think about it, you're going to start to think, I can't afford to do this. You, you just learn. You build your life on that foundation. We don't get the credit for that. Her parents were like that. My parents were like that. My dad, when I was older, I used to get five bucks a week for allowance. And he would hand it to me and say, that 450 of that's yours. There's a part of that that isn't yours to start with. And that doesn't change. If you made 1.5 million last year, that's not yours, all of it. Here's the thing. When you're poor or poorer, you don't like tithing because it doesn't leave you with very much. When you're really well off, you don't like tithing because the tithe seems so big. And, and it's the same covetous heart. One isn't more righteous than the other. It's the same covetous heart behind them. I rambled. C. God honors those who obey him with the tithe. You can see it in verse 10. Bring the full tithes into... By the way, no, don't. God honors those who obey him with the tithe. 310. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you to pour down on you a blessing until there is no more need. If you're like me, this, here's my problem. I don't, like, I don't like talking about verses like that because I think people are going to put me in a, in a box with Kenneth Copeland and Creflo Dollar and Joyce Myers and, and others like that. Kind of that you know, uh, prosperity gospel, word, faith, name it and claim it, whatever word you want to use. And I, I'm not in that camp, and I don't want to be in that camp. But here's the problem. I wonder if in trying to avoid some of those really bad extremes, we haven't allowed a very precious truth to just kind of gradually wilt a little bit. Because the Bible does teach. You just can't get away from it that God will bless in all sorts of different ways. Not, I give a hundred and God gives me a thousand back. Not that stuff. But the Bible does teach, truly teach, that God will bless in every way those who honor him. And it's right at this point that the teaching on tithing and prosperity sometimes get pushed out of shape. God does promise to honor those who honor him in this way, that doesn't mean that I can use it as a magic wand, you know. The passage tells us how the blessing of God works. It tells us. God would keep pests from devouring their crops, but it's, but it's not just crops. We have all sorts of things in our lives that greed can do, that covetousness can do. A kind of blindness that can settle on the heart. A life all lived with crazy, wacky priorities. And God says, I can fix all that. I can help straighten that. So God here, God would keep pests from devouring their crops, but he, he wouldn't plant their crops for them. They weren't just going to give money and expect God to fill up the barns. They had to be diligent farmers. God would keep fruit from falling from the vine, but they still had to plant the fruit. It's, it's this 
big picture of God's overall blessing and care that's being described. It's a picture of a practical, living, beneficial closeness to God that comes from honoring him. D, I got to hurry. Tithing is a gracious, visible aid to ordering my life properly in God's ways to best be prepared to receive God's blessing. But it's always a step of faith. You see it 10 through 12 of chapter 3? Bring the full tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. And then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight. What's that mean? I think it's delight in the Lord. The key words are those Words at the beginning of verse 10, put me to the test. Because there is that sense in which, you know, if you, if you just want to look at it that way, no one ever has enough money to tithe, it doesn't seem. And that's because God uses the tithe to push back against my natural covetousness, which the whole New Testament describes as spiritual death. Covetousness is death. And tithing is a tool that God uses to fix that in my heart. God responds to our tithe. He responds after we honor him. Return to me, and then I'll return to you. Tithing is designed to look like we can't afford to do it. It's designed to look like it can't possibly work. That's what it means to test I mean, consider these Jewish people. I talked about this before, being addressed in this passage. We know they weren't tithing. We know from our studies in earlier portions of the book that they're having a tough go of it materially. They aren't long back into the land. The crops are poor. The lambs miscarried. They couldn't even bring the proper sacrifice. Remember, they refused to do it. They were experiencing the bitter sting of dry heavens and dusty soil. And then, seriously, people in that situation... What do you think they thought when God said, here's the problem. Here's the problem. You're keeping too much for yourself. What? We're, we're, we're barely making ends meet. Tithe? Don't you see what's happening here? We can't afford to do this. Now, strip away all the personal objections. Look straight at the text. Why couldn't they afford to tithe? Well, there were lots of reasons. They were idolatrous. They were sexually immoral. They weren't honoring the Lord in their marriage commitments. They were living life like they were their own bosses. They forgot they were creatures of God who was their creator. They were taking their lives into their own hands, and it wasn't working. Well, it never does. Even if you make gobs of money, it still doesn't work. And this was precisely where the act of presenting God with the tithe, this is what it was designed to show them. It was a creationally established act 
that firmly stamp their minds with the concept of putting God first. And it taught them putting God first when it didn't seem practical to do so. Tithing always does that. I can put myself in the shoes of the people to whom Malachi spoke. I can easily see myself saying to God, fine, you want me to tithe? How about giving me a great crop? How about multiplying the livestock? How about giving me a great return on my investments? Have you seen what's happened in the stock market recently? Fix it, then I'll tithe. And God says, no, no, you test me. See, see for yourself. If there's one thing I know for sure, let me say it too. I can argue with you about tithing until the cows come home. And here's what I'm sure of. As sure as I'm standing here, there is nothing that God requires of me that's designed to make my life miserable. That every commandment God brings to bear upon my life, however it looks to me now, is designed to be fruitful. Just settle that in your mind. Everything God commands you to do is designed to make your life fruitful in the deepest sense. Show you're honoring him. Show you're loving him. This shouldn't surprise us, by the way. You have to trust. You have to exercise faith every time you tithe. That shouldn't surprise us. You have to exercise faith to be saved. Jesus died 2,000 years ago. How how, how does that cleanse my heart? Well, you have to, it's faith. You have to have faith when you repent and believe. It takes faith. Chris takes people in that tub of water, splashes them under, lifts them up. What's that all about? Well, it's, it's an act of faith and acknowledging. We're going to have little little cups of grape juice and crackers in a little bit. Really? Where's the spiritual dynamic? You've had crackers. You put them in your soup, usually. But it becomes an act of faith and trust that God does something liberating in that. Here's the most important thing I can tell you about. You can argue forever and ever. Is it Old Testament, New Testament? Is it law? Is it New Covenant? And... Just just play that silly game for as long as you want. I know in my own heart, I've seen it in my own life, tithing establishes my life firmly under a faithful creator. I mean, tithing establishes my life under a faithful creator today. It loosens fear. It forces trust. It breaks the deadliest disease known to mankind, which isn't cancer, it's covetousness. It breaks the bondage of covetousness and greed with the enslaving lies of the daily grind that joy will ever be found by the things you can hold in your hand. How shall we return to the Lord? Well, if you want it to be more than just talk and song, look at the material part of your life. 
God wants to bring fruitfulness into it. And you, 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 this isn't coming from a church that's going broke. That's not what this is about. This isn't fundraising. This is about people wanting their lives free under the providential care and blessing of a God whom they demonstrate by their giving they love more than life itself. And you free something up in your